You and all Ukrainians, Mr. President, remind the world every single day what the meaning of the word courage is. All sectors of your economy, all walks of all life. It's astounding. Astounding. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. We'll do it. Thank you. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, February 21st. Those reflections from President Biden during his surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday came from a presidential trip unlike any other in modern times. Biden traveled covertly to the besieged Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, the first time an American president has visited a conflict zone without U.S. or Allied control of airspace in modern time. His aim, of course, was to demonstrate American resolve to help defeat Russian forces that invaded almost a year ago. And the visit produced that kind of image of the two presidents striding to a memorial for fallen soldiers with an air raid siren blaring in the background that was sent around the world. It's also an unusual activity on President's Day, which has largely been a day of ceremony for past administrations. And actually, a little interesting aside, facts about President's Day, it's officially a federal holiday is George Washington's birthday, which was passed in the 1870s to celebrate his birthday on February 22nd. While the name President's Day was proposed in 1951, the U.S. government has never actually changed the name. Um, and then in 68, trying to give uh, federal employees a three-day weekend, they passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, and they changed it from the 22nd to the third Monday in February, which can occur from the 15th to the 21st. Why do we call it President's Day? Well, after that Uniform Holiday Act was passed in the 80s, camp, uh, advertising campaigns from retail sales about trying to get more holiday sales, the name President's Day became popularized and largely accepted. So whether you were shopping or relaxing, I hope you enjoyed your President's Day. Think about where democracy is at right now. A couple of things to reflect on this week. Um, when we think about protecting and modernizing elections administration in particular, the National Association of Secretaries of State had their winter meeting in D.C. last week. That's the bipartisan group of the nation's chief elected officials. There were some interesting reflections coming out of that meeting. Both sides agreed you know, midterms were quieter in 2022 than in 2020, although harassment and threats have still continued. They did note the dramatic increase in onerous public records requests from election deniers, which are making the job of election workers a lot harder. Deliberate attempts to slow down and overwhelm the election process. And you had you know, Republican Kansas Secretary of State Scott Schwab note that we're all catching our breath. Republican Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, said we're not seeing the same physical threats that we saw post-2020. Well, that's good. It's also really sad that we're celebrating a decline in physical threats. But they're also preparing for it to kick back up again. And Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said that her top priority this year is to get her state legislature to pass a law that would make it a felony to threaten an election worker. This is the kind of state of our election administrations. The other thing that they all noticed is how much turnover is happening. 
from statewide officials down to poll workers. There are 15 new chief election officers starting their job this year, the most that it has been in modern times. There have been a huge wave of retirements of local election officials. For example, in Utah, the Utah lieutenant governor, who serves as the chief election officials, noted that almost two-thirds of her state's county clerks will be new in 2024. And poll workers are seeing a huge wave of people not renewing to come back. And so there's going to be a huge new recruitment effort for poll workers, all of which means we're just still in a really fragile position for the basic administration of our elections. When we think about strengthening democratic norms and institutions, a couple of other things to be paying attention to this week. First, of course, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I've been talking about it for weeks, but the primary is today. And it is already proving to be one of the most expensive Supreme Court races in history. Ad Impact has tracked that there's been over $9 million in advertising already spent since the beginning of the year through today's primary. And now we'll get to see tonight or tomorrow whether we'll see, as expected, one of the progressive and one of the conservative candidates move forward. And if that's the case, we will likely see the general election be the most expensive state Supreme Court race in American history, uh, because it really determines the balance of power on the Wisconsin court, which has grave implications for the fair redistricting, administration of elections, choice, environment, and more in Wisconsin, but also the dynamics around its election administration for the presidential election um, coming up in 24. The other thing to look at, I've talked about it before, but we're seeing the kind of ongoing dynamics of election deniers running to be uh, state party chairs in Republican state parties around the country. Uh, Christina Caramo won her bid uh, to be the chair of the Michigan Republican Party after losing her bid by double digits to be the Secretary of State last year. She has denied the results of the 2020 election. She's still not conceded her loss last year. And while it marks a first, she's the first black person to lead Michigan's Republican Party, and it's the first time in Michigan history that both parties are chaired by black women, it also is a real sign that you're seeing the Michigan Republican Party more deeply embrace this election-denying dynamic. Also out of Colorado, Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters announced that she's running for the Colorado Republican Party chair. She lost her bid to be Secretary of State last year, and she actually faces a trial later this year for allegedly helping orchestrate a breach of election equipment in Mesa County. And down in Florida, you had a kind of proxy fight between Trump and DeSantis, where Christian Zeigler, a political consultant with ties to Trump's advisors, was elected in Republican Party uh, chair in Florida. And Powers was actually, who was Evan Power, who was running against him, was elected as vice chair and was seen as an ally of DeSantis. So not necessarily the election denier dance. They're both angling in that direction. But the question for the Republican Party of who's going to be backing which candidate for president. These local elections and these infrastructure elections like state parties have big long-term impacts. So worth paying attention to impacts what type of candidates get recruited, what type of spending happens, what type of advertising happens, what type of ground game, what type of information or misinformation the state parties push out into the world. So continuing to kind of pay attention to that is really important. Um, the last thing this week that's really worth paying attention to is when we think about the media and information ecosystem um, and two different things developing in that space this week. First is that Twitter released its new guidelines for political ads. People have been waiting to see how would Elon Musk 
kind of adjust the guidelines. And it's advertisers have to get pre-approved before they start running political ads. And the rule states that ads may not promote false or misleading content regarding how to participate in the election or dissuading people to take part in the election. Of course, the question is, how will they enforce that rule that about not promoting false or misleading content? But the fact that it continues to be there is a good sign, one that people were not sure of how that would come out from Twitter. Uh, the other thing to track is so two cases that are going up before the Supreme Court this week that could redefine the rules of online speech and content moderation. So this is Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomne. And both of them are about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Basically, the regulations that treat internet companies as publishing intermediaries, meaning they're not liable for the content of the posts on their platform. These have both been working their way through the courts. They are now finally coming up before the Supreme Court. And the conservative majority has been skeptical of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So they're expecting a ruling this summer. There's also a lot of concern. The Supreme Court is ruling on new tech developments and whether the members of the court even fully understand the complexity of it and how do you make decisions on an area of law that is constantly changing. But if they come down pulling or removing Section 230 or making curtailments of it, it would be a big shift. It would put responsibility back on Google and Twitter and Meta and others and hold them responsible not only for the content, but also how their algorithms promote content on their platforms. Could have huge benefits or really continue the dynamics of today that allow misinformation to spread without check. So something to be watching. But that's all for this week's review of American Democracy, and I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.